this is uh, Francis Lawrence. I'm the director of Mockingjay Part 1. And Nina Jacobson. I'm the producer. Um, in the beginning of this adaptation, I think we made a, you know, you'll see pretty quickly that we made a, a jump from the book in that the, the book opens with Katniss walking through the ruins of District 12, and we, we kind of only hear in her thoughts some of the backstory of her time in District 13. But pretty quickly we knew that wasn't going to work, and we were going to have to see, you know, Katniss getting a little acclimated to 13 and meeting Coin for the first time and meeting Boggs for the first time, as opposed to just sort of jumping in um, in the middle of, of the action. So we decided it might be kind of a fun opening since we like to start the movies with a solitary Katniss, a damaged Katniss, um, going into the vents that she now uses uh, to soothe herself a little bit when she's when she's feeling troubled. I think we also felt coming off of Catching Fire, we had the question of, well, where do we want this story to begin? And we made the choice to have it begin probably about two weeks uh, maybe after one week or two weeks after she has been lifted out of the arena at the end of Catching Fire. And uh, we decided that that was the best place to begin the story. Yeah, and this, um, for, for fans of the book, I think people of the book series, people will probably recognize um, this scene with Finnick as um, actually being a part of uh, Catching Fire, the book Catching Fire. It was a scene that I always really liked and somehow just didn't fit into the adaptation in the movie version of Catching Fire. But we needed to really establish kind of where Finnick was in all of this in Mockingjay. And so we took the scene from the end of Catching Fire with Finnick and transplanted it into the hospital of 13 here to sort of set up his state of mind and also to help set the tone since it's really one of the opening scenes of the movie and I think it does a really nice job. It's also was a scene that Sam used in his audition for Catching Fire because it was a really emotional scene and he just did a great job with it. I couldn't move. When we were casting Finnick, that was always the question we had in finding an actor who could do both the sort of bravura and the cockiness of, of Catching Fire and then the heartbreak that he arrives at later on and we found that there were actors who could do the heartbreak there were actors who could do the cockiness um sam was the one we found who could do both with equal conviction and we have uh james newton howard's kind of reprise of uh the one of the themes that he created in catching fire that's one of katniss's themes here and so now here we meet uh, we meet Boggs for the first time, played by Mahershala Ali. And we searched for a while for Boggs, and, and then our casting director um, had the idea of bringing Mahershala in, um, who we, we knew of from uh, House of Cards, and, and he was just perfect. I mean, what a great guy, what a great actor. Just did a, an amazing job for us. So here we get our uh, our glimpse, our sort of first glimpses, along with Katniss, of 13. And we worked for a while really trying to figure out what 13 would look like. 
Um, and the basis for it came all from, from really from the book and the idea that 13 was a district of graphite mines and also a military facility and a nuclear military facility. So we based it all around kind of missile silos and mines and, and bunkers. And we looked a lot at things like, you know, battleships and destroyers and aircraft carriers in terms of how people live in sort of contained areas and have these kind of self-contained civilizations. It was really fun for the production designer to uh, to sort of run with that and, and design it. And we ended up shooting a lot of it all over the place. So some pieces like this are, you know, were shot in stages in Atlanta, Some um, a lot of visual effects extension. Some of it was shot in Berlin. But it all sort of blended together really seamlessly. It's really nice. I think we also had to figure out how to communicate a lot of information in a short amount of time because the idea of District 13, we decided to really save any descriptions of it until this movie. So we're having to learn with Katniss as she learns about all of the life that they live in 13 and how they live it. Katniss, President Al McCoy. Please know. This is also one of the scenes that, that we had to imagine um, along with Suzanne because it's a scene that would have happened before the beginning of the book. Um, and this would be the first time, you know, Katniss actually gets to meet President Coyne, which is something that's skipped over in the book. It's just already happened before anything started. And it's kind of interesting, you know, that Julianne, when we started talking to Julianne about playing the role of President Coyne, we knew that sort of like Catching Fire, there was going to be a lot of development work to do with her character because she's a large character in the book, but there's actually not a lot of her in it. And we were going to be doing some world expansion and, and sort of elaborating and expanding on scenes and sequences with Coin, just like we did with Plutarch and Snow in the last movie. And so there was some real development to be done with the character, and Julianne was a, a big part of it. You can see in the scene there's sort of a soft, sort of warm kind of quality about her, that there's a, a strength and a power and, and softness that Julianne brought. Uh, and I think she just did an amazing job with this character. I managed to break through. All we need now is the perfect message. Katniss, here's what we need to do. We need to show them that the Mockingjay's alive and well. And this scene was also really important in terms of Katniss's state of mind. It was probably one of the trickier movies for me and in terms of tracking character because what she's going through is so complex, the sort of feelings in terms of the damage of what she's been through with the games and how she's feeling about the people around her and how she's feeling about 13 and the responsibility she feels and, you know, people looking at her as a symbol and the anger and the betrayal and the bitterness and the paranoia and... Peter was the one who was supposed to live. And Jen and I really, really worked hard to try and track those emotions and those feelings and that state of mind through through this movie so that we could really carefully see the change um, into her sort of accepting and taking on the role of, of the symbol. The other thing I like about this scene is I like seeing how Katniss still really thinks of PETA as the person who has the way with words. And so she's angry at them for not rescuing him, of course. But she also is saying to them, he's the one who should be spreading your word, not me. Because he's the one who's good at that, not me. She knows who the enemy is. That's not the issue. She's forgotten. Yeah, this is also one of those sort of the kinds of scenes 
now where we we really expand it and it's it's you know it's one of the times one of the few times we sort of play the the trick where Katniss actually leaves you know these these movies and stories are so Katniss centric but she's actually left the room and we linger behind to hear Coin and Plutarch talking about her and what needs to be done and it's a tricky tricky thing to do right and not feel like a point of view shift but I, I think when when she's just been in the room or people are talking about her or it's a conversation that she could hear about later or, or that really affects her I think it's something that works and makes sense I really like this scene The other thing I like about the scene is the sort of different worldviews that Plutarch and Coyne have. Um, and Coyne, at least at this point, sees herself as sort of morally superior to the people of the capital who are willing uh, to do whatever it takes to get the result they want, at least for now. This was... Uh really nice effects work by one of our effects uh, companies in this, um, creating the the launch pad for the hovercraft when she's leaving, but a lot of this stuff was shot in um, warehouses in Atlanta that we used to sound stages, and it was an incredibly cold winter when we were shooting, so, you know, our poor actors, you know, it was probably 10 degrees or something in this giant warehouse when we're shooting this, and, you know, nobody, of course, can be wearing jackets and things. We actually got shut down for a few days while shooting this because of the, the ice storms in, in Atlanta. Strange, strange winter, strange weather. I like the seeing that, uh, really seeing the 13 is underground and undercover and hard to find and just seeing the hint of, of ruins in the, in the district there as the hovercraft flies over. You'll also see in the next setup Kind of one of the approaches that I wanted to take with uh, with the hovercraft, just in terms of sort of setting up a reality that we we actually built the interior of a hovercraft that we could have on set uh, that would be attached to a large crane, um, and so we kind of trained all of our actors to to be inside the set. They would get lifted up, I don't know, 50 or 60 feet in the air, and then get lowered down by a hydraulic crane and could actually land so you could see them get dropped down and walk out into our location and then have the uh, the hovercraft lift off. We had these really elaborate fans and everything to blow the dust around and to blow our hair around and all of that, but it was really just helps create the reality that these, these hovercrafts really exist, helps create and keep the sort of sense of naturalism that I think is important in, in these movies. This is the scene that is the introduction to Mockingjay, the book. So, as Francis was saying before, uh, this is where the book begins, but we've tried to ramp up so that we understand uh, what brings her here and uh, what she's looking for and why they send her. And interesting enough, when we were trying to figure out how to do this, um, the production designer and the location manager had found this factory about an hour outside of Atlanta that was being demolished. And we got permission to sort of put a hold on the work and they let us do the demolishing. So we went in and kind of found an area that had the footprint of the location where we had shot District 12 the year before and then sort of recreated that and put in the Justice Building but smashed it up sort of among the ruins of this, this kind of broken down, demolished, half demolished factory. So we really had a run of the place, which was, which was really fun and gave us a lot of scope 
Um, and then, of course, it was all sort of extended out with, with Dean Egg. And this was really important for her to see the, the bodies here that are left from the people from 12 who tried to escape but couldn't escape the bombing of the Capitol. This was a really remarkable and haunting set. Although it's somewhat enhanced digitally, uh, I think that our uh, production design and props team did an amazing job of creating the reality of this horror. Yeah, there's something, and this scene is one of them, but there's, there's a lot of very quiet scenes in this movie, and I think it's, uh, it's really nice. There's a lot of contrast between this really solitary, lonely, quiet moments with, with Katniss, sometimes even if she's with other people, and the sort of more bombastic kind of action pieces that you'll see later in the movie. And I, I really like that contrast. I really like the quiet and the intimacy of scenes like this. It's also fun, you know, as a filmmaker to be able to, to really tell the story visually sometimes. I also, I love this score cue. In recording the score, we had musicians who had some ancient and unique string instruments, which they used to create the, the sound of some of Katniss's themes, and I, I find that music really resonant. Ah, Buttercup. <laughs> this is this great, great cat. It's one of the mellowest cats I think I've ever seen. He's huge, and but I think we probably, over the course of the movie, spent probably three or four days just shooting close-ups of this cat for, for various things in, in part one here and part two and trying to get the cat to do very specific things there over by the sink and by that window. And Cats aren't the easiest to, to work with, but we got what we needed. And Jen felt really guilty putting that cat in the bag over and over again. Yeah, she did. We found we ended up needing to use two cats. We had one cat who was great at the more active stuff, and one cat who was good for being held and cuddled. This rose we, we found to make it the perfect rose, we actually had to recreate it digitally. But it was seemed almost impossible, actually, to get a, a kind of a perfect white rose. And we liked the idea of it looking sort of you know, almost synthetic, so you can see it has this kind of luster and almost a, a sparkle to it, as if it's been made by the Capitol, that it's not just a freshly cut rose that's that's been left. Of course, all of these scenes, uh, really th throughout all of the movies in which we go to the Capitol, we see what's going on with President Snow. Um, these are all created because Katniss in the books doesn't have the ability to, to witness these things. And again, you can see the sort of, again, you know, the attempt, because we're jumping out of her point of view here, and, and I think it really works, is this idea that, you know, she sees the rose in her home, and of course the rose is making her think of snow because he's left it there for her to find. And it's because of this connection to him that we 
are almost allowed to be able to cut to him to go see President Snow. Citizens. This actually is uh, in Paris. We, uh, we shot some of the movies, part one and part two, in Paris and Berlin, and one of the reasons uh, we needed many new locations that Atlanta didn't have, but uh, one of the things we needed was to expand President Snow's mansion. And so we found this great marble dining room at this chateau about an hour outside of Paris that, that worked and became his new office. Those who choose this destructive path, your actions are based on a misunderstanding of how we have survived together. It is a contract. Peter Craig, who wrote the screenplays for these two Mockingjay movies, I think did an amazing job in so many areas, but he proved to have a particular talent for writing great propaganda speeches. Um, I think this speech is very, very powerfully written. Yeah, and this was, this was an idea that we had because we started to think about, you know, what, what happens in the Capitol the day after the games end in catching fire? You know, what's the sort of damage control that Snow has to do when, when everybody in Panem has been watching the games and sees Katniss shoot the arrow and sees the shield go out that, you know, he's got he's to do something. He's got to say something. And so this was uh, our version of, of one of the speeches that would follow those games. And of course, it ratchets the stakes up quite well here. To those who ignore the warnings of history. <laughs> Prepare to pay the ultimate price. You know, now we get to see a little more of 13. We kind of see different layers at different times, and now Katniss is let out of the hospital, and she's going to go visit her mother and sister, and we see a glimpse of how people live here. And this was part of the fun of designing 13 with uh, Phil, our production designer, to, to think about how people like this would live. And again, you can sort of see the circular pattern and almost hive-like pattern of the, the living compartments and it was incredible, the sets that he built in these movies. And, you know, pretty much every three or four days we would move to a new set and they were always really spectacular. And, you know, even the cast would all comment every time we stepped into a new one. And this was definitely one of those. There was a lot of steel. I think he even remarked at how much steel was being used. When most sets are built with wood and they're sort of meant to be very temporary. A lot of these sets were really solid because of the multiple layers and stairs and the amounts of extras and things that we needed to build in. And so this, this was one of those really big, impressive sets that had a big central stairway and lots of railings and balconies. And, you know, there were still some extensions we needed to do digitally, but for the most part, it was there. And I really am pleased with the, the design of, of the living quarters, the interior and the exterior. This scene was something that we went, we did multiple versions of, actually. This is the, in fans of the book will know that this scene where Katniss sees Peta for the first time on a screen actually takes place in command with Coin and Plutarch and Boggs. And, and we did multiple versions. We actually shot it once in command with everybody having a meeting and her getting called in where, you know, very, very much like the book, asking her if she's changed her, you know, made up her mind and will she be the Mockingjay and... It just didn't seem to work, and then we actually sort of scaled the group down and shot it in Coin's meeting room and did an alternate version of it and realized that one didn't work as well. And then we sort of 
tweaked it again to have it take place here in the cafeteria where she can still be reeling from what she's seen in District 12. And then he appears on the screen. Um, but when Peter starts to react, uh, starts to talk about the Civil War and the unrest and how people must lay their weapons down, you know, she can be surrounded by everybody in, in 13, and she can see and hear and feel the reaction to, to Peter's words. Uh, and I think it, it really works nicely. I do, too. I think, you know, we knew going in that it was a challenge that the only time we would see PETA for most of the movie would be on screens, and that can become very static, and you can feel very removed. And so we were always looking at how to breathe life into these scenes and make them very active scenes, and um, I think Francis did an incredible job here of bringing life to the scene, you really feel like you're there with her. You feel uh, what it must feel like to see this crowd turn on him as they do. But the other thing that was really important to us was that we wanted to make sure that uh, Katniss did not become the Mockingjay for the sole purpose of saving PETA. Uh, she has a much greater consciousness of what's going on in the country and what Snow has has done to bring everyone to their knees and that she needs to take action. So she knows she needs to take action, but we wanted to give her time to sort of sort through the ramifications of that decision, and this is that first step. Thank you. I was going to ask you to speak about the unrest, but... Yeah, there's also something nice. I mean, again, Katniss is such a solitary character, but there's there's something so nice about how lonely and isolated she feels, even surrounded by lots and lots of people. Um, and sometimes I think you feel lonelier, you know, in a sea of people, and, and I think that's one of the strengths of of the scene because she's, she's such an outsider here in this world of 13, and uh, I think that works here. You know, you'll also notice throughout the movie here that we, we did some work with Josh uh, playing PETA. So this is PETA at his healthiest on the screens. But in the next interviews, you'll start to see that he gets skinnier. Um, but because we shot both movies back to back and we needed Josh to be healthy and get uh, skinny and gaunt and sort of withdrawn because of his time in the Capitol, but then come back eventually in part two, you know, there was it, it was going to be impossible for him actually to lose the weight and be safe and be healthy and kind of gain it back again. We just couldn't schedule the movie that way. So we did a lot of effects work to make him skinnier, both him and, uh, and Joanna. Well, so we imagined that that first interview was probably filmed shortly after the games. Um, so he has not been tortured yet. In our minds, I think PETA is a pacifist. He does believe in diplomacy over war. But there's so much he doesn't know about what's happened. And this is part of Katniss's realization, which is that there can't be a ceasefire. Um, yeah, this is part of that connection to the idea that, you know, even though Pete is out there, that she's not just becoming the Mockingjay, agreeing to be the Mockingjay to save Peta, but that something has to be done and snow has to be stopped. So through these next few scenes, she's she's sort of putting together the idea that she does want to help, but 
she can also ask for Peta's safety as well. I love this scene. Yeah, you know what? what what I tried to do here when when we decided we were going to have this the dream and the the beginning of uh, will you stay with me always um, in the movie um, and because it was a callback to that scene from the victory tour and the train and Catching Fire what we did and if you go back to Catching Fire you'll see that it's actually shot exactly the same way too we use the same the same lenses the same camera angles the same cutting pattern from catching fire and they hold each other exactly the same way. So even though they're in a different environment, it's it's kind of a recreation of that scene, not just the dialogue, but the actual body language and angles as well. Can't sleep. This was a nice scene too. I think Willa just did a fantastic job in this movie. She obviously, because she's at this age where she's really growing, um, it's just been incredible for me to see how how she's maturing, you know, physically getting, you know, taller and turning into a young woman, but also just her acting ability. I mean, she really blossomed. Her acting really blossomed in this, and I think she just did a fantastic job um, in these movies, and she was, she was really impressive. And I, want to help. I think that this movie is the one, more than any, where you really see the relationship of these two sisters and the connection that they have. And we've seen glimpses of it here and there, but you really, I think, in this movie, you see the, the closeness and trust between them that gave rise to her first decision that sets off this series, the decision to volunteer for her. Yeah, it's a nice scene. And now we have a scene coming up that's actually very similar, if not pretty much exactly the same as the as the scene in the book where Katniss sort of gives the demands of being being the Mockingjay, and it it sort of starts a a brief sequence in the movie that that has some levity. It's some quite honestly, I think some of the 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 only levity in the movie is this sort of series starting in this scene and through the the filming of the first propo and. But I like the scene a lot, and Jen was great that she could use some of her comic timing in a in a scene like this. Because Katniss actually isn't very funny, but she's <laughs> but Jen's uh, Jen's great in the scene. There's I think a, I think you really see the the teenager that Katniss is, and it's easy to forget that given the circumstances she's in. But this is where you see that she's still just a big kid. There will be a tribunal, a fair judgment. Thank you. It's actually really interesting for how serious Katniss is. Jen is the exact opposite. She's she's always joking around. There was this, you know, she wanted a, a blooper reel to be made, and so the editors put together this blooper reel for the first half of the movie. And one of the most interesting things that they did that I've just found fascinating was that, you know, a lot of this cast, especially Jen, would joke right up until the moment action was called, and they strung together a series of cuts of the moment action was called and you could see going from laughter and joking and turning into Katniss and that sort of moment of transition, but shot after shot after shot after shot of the transition. It's really fascinating to watch how quickly she can sort of flip the switch and go from Jen cracking, you know, silly jokes into into Katniss. Pretty talented. Do you have any other conditions? 
My sister gets to keep her cat. I also think you see, again, the dynamic between Plutarch and Coyne. At this point, Plutarch is still sort of educating Coyne on what it takes. Uh, but eventually, the student will surpass the teacher. Go away. And, yeah, then we make our, uh, our introduction here of, of Effie Trinket in 13. And so for, for fans of the book, I mean, sure. they know this is, the, uh, this is a big deal. And her role was basically given to a character named Fulvia, who became Plutarch's, you know, assistant uh, in 13. And it just seemed impossible when we were doing Catching Fire that there's, you know, that we can't have Effie Trinket in here. And so there was a little convincing of Suzanne, but as soon as she saw, I think it was actually the first thing she said to us after seeing Catching Fire was... She said, Fulvia who? Yeah, Fulvia who? <laughs> there's no way that Effie Trinket cannot be in this movies. And so... But it was we, a big decision to figure out what to do with Effie. We knew we wanted to see her again because we're so attached to her. Um, and what we thought was most interesting was to see her forced into this role of rebel, have forced to leave behind the capital and the things which she has held dear, but which she's clearly questioning by the end of Catching Fire. And I think you see here that her commitment to Katniss supersedes all of her politics or any of her her own agenda has really just become to try to be a good friend to Katniss. You honestly believe one of these cave dwellers is going to take my place? No. And it's just so great. I mean, I'm so happy that she did this. I mean, Liz is just amazing as, as Effie Trinket and great to have around, but she'd really just because of this, the tone of this movie and being underground, uh, you know, she just brings uh, some oxygen some much-needed oxygen and levity to the movie um, that I think is really, really needed. And it's just, she's just fun. She's, she's fun to listen to. It's fun to see her in this environment, to see how she sort of messes with the clothes. And I think Kurt and Bart, our costume designers here, were really creative with how Effie would use the, the jumpsuits and sweaters and things like that to create her own, her own sense of fashion in, in 13 against the capital. In exchange... I also think that Effie uh, brings a humanity to the people of the capital. Um, it's easy to just look at them as some sort of monolithic evil. And um, I think she brings a, a sense that there are cracks in that monolith. Yeah, this was always an important scene for me as well. I mean, what I really like is that we got a little of the, the sort of backstory of that there, you know, aren't many children in 13 and that there was an epidemic and killed off a lot of the kids. We also get a sense that Coyne had a family too, which is something that sort of humanizes her because we don't hear that much about Coyne um, and who she is and what her background is. So I like that that information. And you also get to see a sort of a the sense of... of coin as a leader here that she comes out and she speaks very simply and matter-of-factly and she has a list and uh you know out in front of her and she doesn't have a speech memorized um and there you know quite honestly isn't a whole lot of charisma to her speaking to to 13 such that there's a lot of room for her to learn from plutarch i'm only talking about salesmanship the thing with revolutions they're, they're a tender flame. They need to be nurtured. I love the dynamic between 
Effie and Coyne, uh, two people who are, could not be um, more opposite, further from each other on the spectrum. Excuse me. You know, it gives a revolution, that hair. That was, uh, I think that was an improvisation from, from Eliz. Uh, she's really good at that. You sort of let her go. Um, you know, you can sort of talk about some ideas, but she always comes in with a bunch of, of really fun ideas uh, for, for scenes and for jokes. And there's, there's some here in the cafeteria scene as well. And this this was actually a very hard scene to shoot. It was. Um, this was uh, in the book. Uh, the scene is meant to have Plutarch uh, in it. And um, he's the one who shows her the drawings from Cinna. And we were fortunate to have Effie in the movie because she could organically take on some of the role that uh, some of the scenes that Plutarch was meant to be in. We had shot about 80% of Phil's work when he died, and it was so, so hard. This was the first day back, or the second day back. It was, yeah, the second, second or third day, day back. back. We actually were supposed to shoot this scene on a, on a Friday, um, but because of the snowstorms in Atlanta, it got postponed to the next week. Uh, and then Phil died, and so we had to reschedule the movie um, and took some time off to sort of get everybody, give everybody a little time. And then we came back and started really quietly and as simply as possible to sort of ease everybody back into work again, doing these cafeteria scenes. And we started with small scenes with Jen and, and Liam first and just shot for half days and things like that and then eased back in and... This was one of the, the two scenes that Phil had left with dialogue. Um, and Liz very nicely accepted the, the, to take over the, the scene. Okay. Bring up the lights. We had a lot of fun shooting this scene. Uh, the two of them Jen and Phil just had so much fun improvising and playing off each other. Yeah, we had lots of different versions of this and, you know, different sort of scope of comedy in, the, in this, very broad versions and serious versions. and But, but a lot of fun. Um, and really fun to see uh, Jen act poorly. <laughs> Um, but it's one of the one of the ideas in this that I really like. I mean, it's kind of fun and the levity is really nice. But one of the ideas that I really like and I think really works in this movie is this idea of the sort of fake propaganda. This this thing where you sort of create everything from scratch and with visual effects and you write a script and you get a girl who's not an actress and you have her say a couple of lines and you sort of expect it to be this moving piece of propaganda. And what you quickly find out is, no, you have to put the person out in the in the real world for it to work. And I, th I think that works really nicely in this movie that quickly we're given a dose of reality when Katniss goes out to District 8. People of Pan Am, we fight! We dare to end this hunger! I think one of the things that we love about Katniss as a character is that she can't act. She can't 
put on a show with very effectively with if she doesn't really feel it and she plays with that and finds a way to play the role in the first Hunger Games and in trying to pretend to be in love with Peta but even that uh, she ends up actually falling in love over time um, this is obviously a great moment from the book our first time getting to see Hamish uh, we wanted him to have this fantastic entrance and uh, their reunion after the betrayal she feels for him having collaborated with Plutarch uh, all along without ever having told her uh, what his plans were This is also a fun, fun scene to shoot. Again, continuing with the sort of string of, of levity and getting to look at the bad, the bad propo and Katniss's bad acting. And again, Hamish, who's, who's just so great in these movies and Woody is in the role, um, bringing more levity and, and kind of fun. But he sort of knows the truth about Katniss and that she can act, that she needs to be real and she needs to... She, Acts from the gut. I'd like you all to think of one moment. We had to keep the classic Boggs line as well about the makeup, which I always loved. When she volunteered for her sister at the reaping. Excellent example. Okay. This also was a very cool set. This is part of uh, Phil, our designer's uh, command set. We decided to sort of split it up where we have one really large command room that's downstairs that you can see out the windows there behind uh, Phil and Elizabeth and then the Coins meeting room up above so we had room to, to sort of be up in a meeting room where where coin would work or you could be down where you know a lot of the action takes place in the in the larger command where they run the operations of 13 it was a really really impressive set and really nice design really fun fun to shoot scenes in command rooms can be I think really sort of tough and stiff sometimes but the design was really smart in, in terms of the way that we could have the actors interact and switch spaces and things like that. I also love the sort of flirty dynamic between Effie and Hamish in this scene. No, we can't protect her. It has to come from her. It, that's what people respond to. You want a symbol. You know, it's interesting, too, what you can notice that something that I try to do, and in a scene like this with this many people, it's quite easy to just start cutting around to to everybody for their lines, but you'll find that I'm always anchored um, with Katniss, so that typically you're sort of seeing it as she would see it and hearing it as she would hear it. So I tend to stick to shots over her shoulder of, of the other actors as, as opposed to going to the other actors so that you really feel like you're experiencing a sequence like that with all these people talking about her. We as an audience can feel like we're with Katniss, with everybody talking about us, almost as if she's not even in the room. This scene we shot in Berlin. I think this is the last scene we shot for part one. We had one day left after this. This is our second to last day on our on our shoot for the two movies. Partly just because we went to Berlin last. But we just had a few scenes to shoot the next day after this. But we found this great space in this power plant 
in Mitte in the middle of Berlin and this was up on the fifth floor or something and there are these big generators there and it just you know it's not easy to actually find these big thick kind of concrete structural spaces that don't have a lot of doors and windows and things like that so that you feel like you're really underground and then Phil and his uh, set decorator really just made a great kind of weapons lab for for Beatty here and you'll see in the deleted scenes we actually did shoot some of the scenes earlier here with uh with Beatty there was a a scene where Katniss and Gale are led through a hydroponic farm and then into the meadow uh, where they see Beatty studying hummingbirds that'll be on the DVD and the extra scenes um and the meadow will be in part two but not in part one all of this and you just left the districts to fend for themselves this was cool this is shot in the same warehouse where we shot the launch pad but you know extended digitally in a different way and a phenomenal job by um by the effects house here on the on for the hangar and you get to see the first glimpse of the kind of arsenal that 13 has and has had at their disposal while you know all the other districts have been struggling and i think seeing these weapons makes uh, katniss very angry but Sheen Boggs, I think, have a very important conversation here about, you know, one of the big concepts of war in terms of retaliation, the, the idea of, you know, when, if, if somebody shoots at us and we shoot back, you know, how does it end? It really only ends when everybody destroys each other, which is why you have to be very smart about when to fight back. These people have come a long way to support the cause. This is Cressida, my opinion, one of the best up-and-coming directors in the Capitol. This is a you know, fun scene of getting to meet this team from the Capitol. We cast Natalie very early on in the process of casting this movie. And once we had thought of her for the role, we really didn't think of anyone else. We just knew she was who we wanted. We also had a really good time trying to cast in Castor and Pollux, um, two guys who we felt could really feel like brothers. And uh, the connection between Eldon and Wes, who play Castro and Pollux, is so strong. They, uh, we hear Francis had them sign to each other. And what are they saying? Uh, Pollux makes a sign over his face that's basically saying she's prettier than I thought she would be. He's saying this to his brother about, about Katniss. It's also one of the first times I think we actually get an explanation of an AVOX. Yes, we've saved that. Every movie we've thought, is this the time to do it? And it has always felt like it slowed us down. I like that we do it here when you're meeting. An AVOX that's going to be somebody that we connect with and that we live with for a while. Again, this is our set that was hanging from a crane, so we're now actually inside the set there and this is the set dropping down um in atlanta at uh at another kind of abandoned factory that we turned into um the recently bombed out district eight with the district eight hospital this was is actually a blend between atlanta um, different locations in atlanta for the exterior and interior as well as berlin for for the bombing because the we couldn't find the sort of scope we needed for sort of dilapidated factory-like buildings in, in Atlanta. But there's an amazing place outside of Berlin. Well, we've got plenty of those. 
So this is Patina Miller, who's playing Paler. Uh, this is her film debut. She's a huge star on Broadway. We looked at her performance in Pippin and uh, had her send us an audition, and she just had so much charisma that we wanted to have her in the movie. Capital's done everything they can to break us. And this was always a very important sequence. Um, this is sort of what I was talking about, where you, you know, it's kind of playful back at 13, and, and everybody's making the attempt to sort of do this, this fake propo. And then you have to send her out in the real world, and suddenly you go out into the real world of war, and, you know, instantly you're sort of confronted with destruction and with death and with injury and pain and suffering. And, and, and I think that contrast works really well, that suddenly playtime is over. Just let them see your face. Huh? We actually used this right behind um, Natalie there in the plastic curtains is actually the little alley where Katniss and Gail kiss in Catching Fire. We used that as part of District 12. Um, but here we repurposed these warehouses for District 8. Um, we shot some scenes for District 12 in here as well in Catching Fire, but this became our hospital. And we, we did the scene very early on in the in the schedule, and it was an important one. It's kind of an anchor for Mockingjay Part 1 because it really sort of solidifies her position as taking on the role of the Mockingjay. She sees here pretty quickly how much she means to these people. You know, she doesn't really believe that she's going to be able to help or that she's really truly going to mean anything to them, and then she starts to see that here, that she can, she can make a difference and she can, she can help. I think it's a really powerful scene for her to see the impact she has on people um, and the way she plays it here and really moving at the time we shot it and the way that it's been cut together. I came, I came to see you. And it was a lot of work doing this. I mean, you know, the set decorators creating this makeshift hospital, you know, we had four or five hundred um, extras these two days. Um, and a lot of makeup. The makeup team did an amazing job with all the, the burns and the injuries and things. And this kid did a did a great job, you know. I will. Wasn't an actor. And... Another great cue by James Newton Howard, bringing in another one of our themes that he created for Catching Fire that he brings back here. Also nice to see Cressida here seeing the power that Katniss has for the first time and filming it. I also think about how up until this point, she's been a real disappointment to Coin. Coin sort of wondering what's all the hullabaloo mm -hmm. about this Katniss Everdeen. And uh, I think she's about to find out. So this is back in Paris here. Snow sees the, the image of, of Katniss appearing. I love that smile on his face. Uh, she's causing him a lot of trouble, but he's clearly happy to see her. Yeah. He has a, a scary love for Katniss Everdeen. It was something that Donald and I talked about quite a bit. And Sarita Chuturi, who's on Homeland, and she, she and I actually worked together on a, on a TV show that I did a while back, and... I love Sarita, so I was so glad that she wanted to play this. This is a character that was created by, by Peter Craig for, for the movie. Somebody, a, a confidant, somebody who's a true believer in, in snow. Show them what it costs 
to be friends with Katniss Everdeen. Your mom's gonna be proud of you when she sees the footage. Will this play in the district? It'll be tattooed on her eyes. There's a problem. And this is where we transition into, into Berlin for, for the bombing sequence. And this was something, it was one of the last things we shot as well um, in the entire schedule because we were shooting in Berlin. We originally wanted to shoot it right at the front of our schedule in Berlin, but Liam, very early on, very quickly, right as we sort of moved outside, Liam uh, snapped his ankle on some rubble running toward the stairs and basically couldn't walk for almost three weeks. So we had to take a break from the sequence and come back to it at the very at the very end. Luckily, he was okay, and it was more of a bruised ankle than a break, but we were really worried for, for a while that he wasn't going to be able to walk for the rest of the shoot. We uh, had to take, we had to have translators everywhere, of course, because it's sort of scary to get hurt in a foreign country, and you go to a hospital and everybody's talking about you in German. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was right here. It was this is the shot where they ran away and they first see the bombers and then you come back to the shot. And we actually use a piece of it, but we just cut before. It's the same shot. They're circling back around. And Jen runs out and Liam was actually behind the cameraman and right about there was supposed to overtake the camera, but fell behind the cameraman as he was trying to pass because his, his ankle had snapped. And so this is now a month later when he was healed and we could continue on with uh, with the shoot. That was just an accident that the gunner got pulled over the sandbags, but it was really effective. Stunt people had her on a line to sort of pull her back when she got shot, but they pulled a little too hard. This is an incredible location called the Ruinsdorf Ruins. They're targeting the hospital. Actually, another part of this location was used by Quentin Tarantino to burn down the theater in Inglorious Bastards. But I think what Phil Messina did with this space is was really a jaw-dropper when we first all arrived and saw the creation of this destroyed district. I get to see one of the explosive arrows and in action there. Now we transition back to Atlanta, and surprisingly from one of the very last things we shot, now to one of the very first things we shot. This was probably four or five days into our 150-day schedule we shot this, this sequence, which was also impressive in Atlanta because we had most of this fire there, which I think was really good for the actors. It, it made it tough and it made it hot, especially to be that close. It's, it gets very, very hot to be that close to flames that size. But I think the more you can kind of create the reality there and on set, the easier it is for the actors to, to believe that they're in a place like that. And it was very believable. It was very smoky and a lot of diesel fumes and fire and heat. And it was pretty hot and sweaty. It was still the end of summer in Atlanta, so it was still quite warm. Uh, it was before we hit our big deep freezes. Filled with unarmed men, women, and children. And there will be no survivors. This is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. I think uh, this is really Katniss becomes a Mockingjay uh, fully in this moment. I mean, we've seen her 
you know, in Catching Fire when she spreads her wings and she says, like a mockingjay, it's a powerful moment, but to me this is the full realization of her and all of her powers and her power to influence and how deeply she feels the injustice of what the capital has done to the people of Panem. But do you see that? Fire is catching. And if we burn, you burn with us. Probably the most famous line from the from the book. Great speech that we just got right from the book that Suzanne wrote. And then we go here into the into the collective and you now see how this real moment and this tragic moment is repurposed with music and editing and turned into propaganda film. And you can see pretty quickly how uncomfortable it makes Katniss. And how delighted Coin is with the product. Come up with me for the beginning. Yeah, and we worked for a while trying to really find the balance of the, you know, the speech that Katniss really gives from the heart uh, in the moment, sort of mixed with music and mixed with the way it's edited and, and with some footage of her actually shooting down the hovercraft and, and adding a message of joining the fight. And so we worked for a little while, you know, trying to kind of craft what we thought the sort of perfect propa would be from, from the moments that were filmed. There is no progress. And I think also the using the logo from the film that you've seen and the whistle that you see that are both part of the film and part of the marketing campaign for the film. And to see that marketing tool being used inside the story, I think, is an interesting choice. Yeah, I think that works, uh, that works really nicely. You can also see here, too, if you sort of, if you take note of Coin now, that her speaking abilities have already changed a little bit that she's taken note of what Plutarch said to her, right? She has no notepad in her hand. She's not speaking quite as softly. She doesn't have the same kind of monotone quality that she did in the first speech. There's a little more charisma. She's smiling a little bit. Coin herself is kind of becoming a star. She's hatching. Yes. Together, we will become an alliance to be reckoned with. So you can see she's stirring the people up now. And this was something, too. I wanted to try and find something about the culture of 13 and the military culture that where they would respond not just by applause, but that they would have their own way of kind of cheering. Um, for a while, even when, when they disagreed with something, we have sort of tried them hissing as opposed to, you know, kind of calling out and yelling. And, and that was actually too strange. Too creepy. <laughs> and too weird. It almost made them feel like aliens or something. But uh, I liked this cheer. And um, my assistant, Cameron, did some research and found this cheer that the Red Army used to do. There was this hoo-ha, hoo-ha. So we found this recording and then trained all the, the, the background, our District 13 background, into, into doing it. One of the interesting things about our background on this, that I will say, it cast very well by our background casting in Atlanta by Rose. But we kept the same people. Often in movies, you'll just sort of replace people as you go through. But really, we had a giant pool of, I don't know, five or 600 people for District 13. 
And whenever we had a scene, we always brought them back. So they knew how to wear the wardrobe and how to do their hair and had their hair cut properly and sort of knew the cheer and all of that so we could have them in the collective or in the cafeteria. This scene, when we first hired Peter Craig to write these movies, this is one of the first scenes that he pitched in our first conversation. The idea of finding a way to see the impact that Katniss has on the other districts and, and how they respond to her message. And so, in addition to the whistle, we added the repeat of, of her words. But having these guys clamber up these trees was something that Peter imagined early on that was a lot of fun to see it come to life. Yeah, and it was a, it's a tough thing to do. I mean, we, we did a lot of research into these, you know, these loggers in the northwest that can kind of run up trees. And you quickly also understand that, you know, most of the times when you see those competitions of guys running up trees, that all the branches have been taken off the trees. <laughs> um, and it's hard to find trees with no branches. Uh, and we found this this pine farm in south uh, south of Atlanta, about two hours south of Atlanta, that we ended up using that worked out really well. And one of the sort of great guys for climbing the trees, and we used him multiple times, is Pedro, who was our greensman, who was fantastic. So if you look really carefully, you can see that he has been duplicated on a few of the trees because he was so good at it. This was very early on. This was always one of my favorite scenes. Again, one of the quiet sort of scenes after something, you know, very action-oriented and almost bombastic with the bombs and the last one to come back to nature and to be outside and be in the quiet where Katniss and Gail feel so comfortable. It's really nice. We shot this very early on in the movie as well. I think it was in the first two days. I mean, it might have been our second day of shooting. And it was doing that scene there where she's taking aim at the elk that somebody disrupted a wasp's nest in the ground and the entire crew was attacked by by wasps. I was stung, Jen was stung. There was one of our, our crew members, one of our grips was stung, I think 19 times, had to go to the hospital, but everybody ended up okay in, in the end. But it made for an exciting afternoon. In this beautiful location, it was just nice to for the movie, for us to be able to get out from being underground and in the in the dark and in the cement and all of that and kind of get back out in the sun and the open air and by water and in the quiet without the sort of buzzing of fluorescent lights and things like that. It just feels like you can get the breath of fresh air with them. And it's also where they they start to bond again. I really like this moment between them, the, the friendship that they have, and um, I like to want to think about what's going through Gail's mind at this point because Katniss is so committed to getting Peta back, but Gail still has feelings for her that are going unanswered. And I always like this shot. I mean, it's a little sort of shoe leathery, but I, for some reason, you know, there's this nice moment where the two of them are kind of back together again and quiet and happy. 
and you come back into 13 and that door, that big industrial door sort of closing out nature in the outside and bringing her back in for the scene where she's going to see PETA now looking unhealthy and she's going to start to split with Gail again over PETA. And you can see some of the work that we did now um, on PETA. This company, Lola, did a great job skinning him up. They had done some amazing work in Captain America. And I just thought they did a fantastic work, and I'd worked with them a bunch years before, and uh, they did a nice job with, with Josh here. Josh also did a great job with his performance, you know, because the majority of his performance in this movie are are in these interviews with Stanley that we shot over, you know, two days and just did a great job of... Of, of sort of selling the the abuse and his fear and his conviction and and speaking what he believes I would I would tell her to think for herself yes don't be Josh is such a pro in order to be able to use this footage during the scenes that are Katniss and Gail or the people in the cafeteria or wherever people are watching the video, before we started shooting, we did some pre-production days where Josh came in and uh, just performed uh, the scenes so we would have that video to use as a tool for everybody else. And he came in, you know, we hadn't started shooting, we weren't going to be shooting him for quite a while, and he had it all memorized, performed, so with such power, each scene, he sort of knew where he ought to be emotionally. Uh, he just really came in and blew us all away, uh, and we hadn't even started shooting yet. I know. I was actually worried it was going to be hard for him to top his performance in the in that test footage for the real footage, because he did such a great job. Uh, but it was really helpful to have that footage so that editorial cut it all together, and then we could actually put it up on the TVs and play it through loudspeakers so everybody in the scenes could see him. Whether we were in the cafeteria or in command, we could always play the footage. Everyone has a choice. This is a scene we really worked on a lot in the screenplay stage, um, because uh, in the books, this, it's very important, obviously, that Gail and Katniss have this fight. In the book, the fight has to do with her fear that he has been trying to keep her from seeing the video and that's why they went hunting and so we decided to change that up a bit but we really wanted to see them break apart on a philosophical level they have a different world views and whereas she is feeling this great concern for PETA she's also seeing the degree to which he has now fully aligned himself with coin fully aligned himself with 13 and with his role as a warrior above all else mm -hmm. and seems to have lost empathy for Peta and Peta's situation Katniss tell us what happened here we were all standing right here this was also something we worked on for a while and I think Peter did a great job in writing this um, this speech for Gail, you know, you sort of think that Katniss is going to talk about what, what happened in 12, and Gail quickly takes over and starts telling the story of his night, um, and Peter just did a great job writing this speech, and, and Liam did an amazing job. Um, it's not an easy thing to be the only person talking for three pages uh, of dialogue, and uh, and he really did, did an amazing job. I know what that meant. 
I really like this the sequence in general from the the fight because they they have this sort of rift over Peta and Peta's ideas in the last scene, and then you come here and you see his pain and hear about his experience and see how moved he is by it, and that again sort of draws Katniss back to him. Stay with Gail. Nine hundred and fifteen of us made it to the fence. And now you get to hear for the first time as well what Gail did that night, that he actually managed to really help save the 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 people who survived from twelve, the people that are all in thirteen now. It's kind of revealed how he he managed to get a fair amount of people out. This is also another one of those cues that James did for us with the ancient strings. I think it was also important to us in this scene that this return to 12, in the book it has been sort of previously scheduled that they will go to 12 to do a propo there. And we tweaked that a little bit in the screenplay and the idea that Katniss feels that whatever she can do to advance the cause of spreading the word and making sure that every district knows what Snow has done, knowing that uh, that will always get her one step closer to PETA um, as they shift the balance and try to bring every district to their side. This is where you kiss me. I didn't think you remembered that. One of the things that I like coming up, I mean, it's a very important stretch for, for Katniss and Gail emotionally, but, but also coming up um, in the next scene is the hanging tree, which is a big part of, of the book. Um, and so we started very early on working working on the hanging tree and obviously we got the the lyrics from Suzanne and from the book that was done but we we needed a melody and the Lumineers had written a really beautiful song for the for the soundtrack of Catching Fire and I just thought they had the right sensibility and um, I liked those guys Wes and Jeremiah a lot spoken I had spoken to them a bunch um, about Catching Fire and about their song and so I called them up and just asked them if they'd be interested in taking a crack at writing a melody for, you know, what you feel like, a, you know, an old Appalachian folk song. And they were into it. And about two days later, they sent me two, two melodies, one with somebody singing and one with somebody whistling. And um, we picked the first, which is what the song is here. And, and I think it just worked really well. And it was this sort of perfect kind of blend of, of a bunch of people working together here that, you know, we, we wrote that song. Uh, the, I mean, the Lumineers wrote the song. We uh, shifted the key based on what a vocal coach said. Jen actually sings it here, and this is the live recording. She was not pre-recorded. She was not recorded after. This is her on the day at that quarry singing the song. Um, and then I gave it to James Newton Howard so that you can start to hear score kind of coming in underneath it, that 
One of James's assistants, Sven, did all the birds singing along. So he found all these whistles that he did and made them sound like birds. And so they could do the song following her. And then James's score sort of comes up underneath it following the melody written by the Lumineers. And then our sound designers recorded all the background later singing the same song, but with the tweaked lyric from, uh, from Plutarch. And it was just created this really seamless thing. And it was really nice to see how everybody kind of worked together to create this one linked sequence. I also think that uh, the notion of having this song become an anthem for the revolution, that was something else that Peter Craig uh, pitched in our first conversation. And I think it takes this song, which is so powerful in the book and so haunting, and it turns it into this incredible sequence. I think that this whole sequence that unfolds from here through the dam is, uh, is one of my favorite parts of the movie. And I think uh, you know, all systems are firing here. Yeah, I just, I also really liked the idea of this becoming. It has almost a sort of a requiem kind of quality to it. And so the idea that um, these rebels that are all kind of marching off, knowing that a bunch of them are going to die and sacrifice themselves to get these these bombs into the dam, um, it's a pretty haunting, emotional idea. And so, you know, from the concept that Peter had to make it be this anthem, but also to the emotion that the melody has that the Lumineers wrote in the and the you know, the feeling. I mean, we got also lucky that Jen has this voice. I mean, you know, she's very sensitive about it, but she just has a great quality. I mean, she sounds real, but she has this great kind of raspy, emotional, raw quality to it. And then when you hear it grow here with the Rebels, it just, it has a lot of impact. It's something I'm really proud of in, in the movie. I also like the way her singing harkens back to the, f the first movie, first her song for her sister, then her her song for Rue, and here, like say, her voice in, and the power of her voice to motivate this act of sacrifice and revolution. I think the way that Francis has directed this sequence is just stunning. The dam was based on this, um, the design of the Five Gorges Dam in, um, in China, just sort of scope and the scale of it. But looking and researching dams, we saw this image of um, these huge geysers of water when, when water is being released through the, the, the valves shooting out. And that gave me the idea that you'd have these huge geysers of water almost creating this kind of wall of mist that the rebels would be coming through. So you'd have this moment where the peacekeepers are waiting and then you have the silhouettes of the rebels sort of emerging through the mist and the gunfire starting. Um, another one of our vendors also, uh, effects vendor Scanline, did an amazing job with the sequence.
and this was important too, so that you really feel Katniss's connection to what's happening with the rebellion. So the idea that she's out in the district and she sings the hanging tree and that becomes the propo and that's that becomes the anthem that the rebels are singing when they blow up the dam and the dam is what takes the power out and the power you know that you sort of really feel the connection to katniss's propo doing this as opposed to just hearing about things you can kind of sit watch the movie and and witness it it makes katniss feel very active it was a tricky thing to to figure out with with these adaptations we for a while also had a lot more detail um of sort of beady we were we were quite worried for a while and i mean you know it's good to think these things through about the you know the the connection and communication between districts and getting into and out of the capital and trying to figure out the technology and the sort of firewalls that the capital would have set up and what Beatty has figured out, what he hasn't figured out um and then as we were editing we discovered that it it actually can be and should be as simple as possible. Tonight, we've received reports. So this is our first time now in, in the big command. So upstairs behind Katniss, right behind her head, is where the meeting room is. On the hydroelectric dam in District 5. So you can see Peter now looks worse, that he's been withered away even more. Decency. Interrupt your regularly scheduled horse manure to bring you... That's it, that's our footage. So again, like Nina was saying, we had Josh's footage, test footage from before the shoot began that we would play for everybody here, and then we would intercut just kind of proxy, propo footage that hadn't been shot yet for everybody to look at. So we could actually project it on a big screen and have everybody interact, again, in an attempt to try and make the environment as real and as interactive as possible for the actors so they're not just staring up at at green screens or tennis balls and things like that that they have real real things to look at and real sound to listen to and it was really really helpful and also in in a space like this the the giant screen actually became the primary light source for the cinematographer so that was also important that when you have a screen that big it's pretty much lighting the room what will be left no one can survive this. No one is safe now. Not here in the capital. Not in any of the districts. I also like the idea in these scenes where you're in these big command rooms and watching TV screens. You try and make them feel as intimate as possible. So these two close-ups really feels like the two of them are looking at each other. That was a warning. Yes, it was. We have to get him out before they kill him. Is there anything in the air? Nothing on Doppler, ma'am. He was in the mansion. He could have overheard something. Possibly. It's time for an air raid drill. This evacuation was a a big sequence to tackle. You know, first we sort of wanted to make sure that she she was going to look for Prim so we could sell that, oh, she left her in the cafeteria, she's going to go look for her in the cafeteria, I can't find her, and then run down into this stairwell. And the stairwell was something that we couldn't find. We actually had to build it. So again, with the steel, we built this in a parking lot um, at the sound stages in Atlanta. And it was about six stories high, steel stairwell that you know needed to hold, I don't know, five or 600 people or something. So it had this really elaborate truss 
and scaffold system outside for people to move in and out, but also had sprinklers and strobe lights built in. And it was a very elaborate set um, to create the beginning of this bombing sequence. Arm long-range missiles for counterattack. Francis, it was a big priority um, for him that in the sequence that you really see uh, coins, uh, intelligence, and her posture as a leader, and um, that to figure out a way in the sequence to have her sort of psych out the capital and and not just survive this attack through luck. Yeah, one of the things that uh, the Peter, um, the writer, and I talked about a lot in this sequence was um, there's a, a Wolfgang Peterson movie called Das Boat that came out, I don't know, when I was 11 or 12 or something, and that I always really enjoyed, but there's this great sequence in it where the sub gets stuck in kind of sink mode and starts to sink further and further and further down and of course everybody's panicking but the captain keeps swearing that the sub can take it even though it's passing the limits of how deep it can go and Peter and I both liked the idea that Coin would show real strength here by saying you know what we're being bombed but don't send out the fleet don't shoot our guns hide let them bomb us, we can take it. And then it would be horrible and it would be scary, but she has such confidence in her decision and in 13 and the way 13's been built that they can they can withstand it. And uh, there's a lot of strength in that. And it had the same sort of claustrophobic feel of being in a sub, you know, 250, 300 feet, you know, down below the, the, the surface of the ocean. So that was kind of the model for us for the sequence was the sort of the feeling of that. This was another phenomenal cue, by the way, yeah. James Newton Howard did. This one. This, it's a very long cue and um, very elaborate in a lot of shifts and changes between scenes and sequences, and just did a great, great job with it. It's one of my favorites in the movie. Me too. I love how it just grows to this crescendo. And all this to save Prim. And Prim saving the cat. <laughs> so this is similar. It's an expanded version of the sequence from the book, but quite similar. I think in the book... Katniss convinces Boggs to keep the door open a little longer, um, and we changed that so that they would shut the door no matter what. And also we felt that Boggs belonged in the command room, not on door duty. Yes. Kind of fun thing, this is this whole level 40 bomb shelter in District 13 was actually shot in a parking garage. So we built part of the stairwell, separate part of the stairwell at the entrance to this parking garage. So this ramp here actually leads down into our bunker that was in a parking garage underneath the building. Damage to the aquifer in the northwest quadrant. We lost a transport corridor. Another sort of miserable and cold. Really cold. <laughs> cold place. Because we revealed ourselves, they saw us firing there. A lot of warehouses and parking garages and in this movie for us. Stand down, don't launch the fleet. 
Another 12 capital bombers approach. Till we move to Europe. <laughs> formation. Hold fire on their approach. So this is the scene where with a hit. She now gets tough and decides to to hide and to wait it out. I really like it. I think it's it's good for her character. And I love how um, Philip plays the scene. He's just scared out of his wits, and uh, he just doesn't have the nerve that she does. They'll seal us in here like a tomb. There was also a really interesting thing that happened this day in terms of the performance. It was something I I learned. And, you know, Coyne here is quite tough with Plutarch. And part of the reason, right, um, good actors really sort of play off one another um, and and listen and adjust according to, to how the other, the person is interacting with them. And in all the off-camera, Phil was actually quite tough. He was being really strong and really tough with, with Coyne. And so he was getting tough responses. And when we turned around and shot Phil, he then jumped back to the way he's written in the book and the way we had written him in the script where, you know, now Plutarch is out of his element and he's scared. And there's sort of, you know, there's some levity there with, with Phil. But what's interesting is Coyne is still tough with him because in the off-camera, Phil was being tough with her and was being a little more challenging. And it was an interesting dynamic to watch between the two and it worked really well for the scene. They had promoted me at the hospital. I forgot to tell you. Training me to be a doctor. This is such a poignant moment. I'm just stupid not to. In the book, I love that uh, in that moment, Katniss is thinking to herself, "This is a world that, if if we win this, this is a world in which my sister can become a doctor. My sister can fulfill her potential, and she sort of sees what's possible." This is our other buttercup. <laughs> the active one. The active one. Because our sort of primary buttercup would have just sat there, would never have followed the light. And we ended up we having... We tried. Yeah. We wouldn't go for it. <laughs> we did. So the flashlight was actually following around this little sort of feathery toy that the cat was trying to bat around because the neither of our cats would actually follow the little spotlight. And then we just erased it and made it look like the cat was following the light. This is all stuff straight from the book, the crazy cat, playing with crazy cat and getting the idea that Snow's toying with them. Hey. That's it. Yeah. Snow's using Annie to punish you. He's and that's Steph. We took some pictures in prep of uh, Steph Dawson, who plays Annie. We actually cast her for, I think I might have mentioned this in the Catching Fire commentary, but we cast her when we started this. But because we were shooting these movies before Catching Fire was released, we could cast her and we actually then inserted her into a, a brief moment of Catching Fire when um, Finnick is first revealed in the Capitol before the games. You can see Steph as Annie with, uh, with Mags very briefly but we had not actually cast her until we started the Mockingjay movies. I'm not saying in my way. Maybe you don't even know yourself. 
Anyone paying attention can see it. How do you live with it? I drag myself out of nightmares and there's no relief in waking up. Also, if you listen here... It's better not to give in to it. What James did was he actually took Ella's song, Lord's song, and created a score version of it. And it was an idea that uh, that Lord had to to possibly take some of her song and see if we can, you know, have James, our composer, use it in the movie. And we messed around with it here. I thought it was kind of nice that you would hear it and sort of in talking about. Peta, since you're going to hear it at the end, right after that really strong, dramatic moment, seeing Peta in the in the hospital, that it would be nice to kind of foreshadow it here. And I think James did a really nice job. And and then uh, did we use were those the ancient strings as well for that? I think so. Something. We had eight extra minutes. I think this is also an interesting scene in that. Uh, at this point, I think Coyne has actually earned Katniss's respect to a degree. She's come to the relationship with a lot of suspicion. And here's a scene where she very directly asks her uh, to go up and, and make sure everybody knows that 13 has survived it. But it's also very much leading up to the point at which Katniss realizes that she just can't do it anymore. She's connected the dots and realize that as much as she wants to advance the revolution, that she can't handle the impact that her actions have um, and the toll that's being taken on PETA, especially when she sees the message that's been sent from Snow right here. This was also another really spectacular set that Phil Phil designed, um, and oddly enough, built in the parking lot of our sound stages. <laughs> Again, it was this kind of elevated crater that was built out of um, some concrete, but a lot of styrofoam to look look like concrete sort of bombed out District 13. And I always just thought it was kind of an interesting idea to sort of be a few stories below ground and see that all caved in, where you'd have trees toppled in. At first, we were going to shoot this at in another location. Yes, we were. We were going to shoot it in a parking garage in the sort of center of a, a parking garage. Near a mall. Yes. At Atlantic Station for yes. anybody that lives in Atlanta. We were going to shoot it at Atlantic Station. Why would they drop these? For me. This was a fun scene. It was an important scene. This was one of the trickier ones emotionally to really track because I think early on when we were all talking about the scenes, this was the going to be the low point for Katniss um, where she was really going to fall apart, where she realizes that she can't be the Mockingjay, that as long as she's the Mockingjay, things are only going to get worse, and she was going to really fall apart. But here on the day, we also realized that it can't be the low point if later she's going to realize or think that she's lost both Gail and Peta, that that would be the true low point. And so we kind of had to modulate this scene differently. And Jen was really helpful here. She had some really good instincts about the sort of revelation of the fact that Snow's just going to kill Peta and that sort of the mix of resolution and, and anger at being forced into speaking when she no longer feels that she can. As long as I'm walking, Jack. No, he warned me. 
He warned me about this. He's doing this because I'm the Makiche. He's punishing Peter to punish me. No. One of the most interesting things I think about um, Katniss in all of these books is that she's always being used by somebody, um, at least until the end of Mockingjay, where she takes actions on her own behalf. But this is her moment of, of, of rejecting the role that she's been given. So this is the end, huh? This is we're just gonna hide down here forever. These scenes were always fun with Jen and and Woody. Hard to get them to be serious though, because <laughs> yes. they like each other so much and they goof around a lot. Yes. Yes, a lot of goofing around. I like this moment too. This idea that he's unhappy because there's prohibition in District 13. I suppose they gave you any kind of medication. You're unbelievable. Okay, but I meant what I said. I, I think this was actually, this was the last thing we shot before Catching Fire was released. I think this was our final day. We had shot for about five weeks in October and into the beginning of November before we left for the press tour for Catching Fire, and this is the last thing we shot. So sort of a lot of pressure, at least on me at the time, because it would have been very bad coming back to work had the movie totally bombed out. <laughs> Luckily, that didn't happen fully support that woman in light of the prohibition they have going on around this For people who know the book well, in the book there's really a moment of apology and reconciliation, a scene between Katniss and Haymitch, and we filmed it, but we found that the performance of these two actors was so strong that their relationship just took a natural course from anger and distance to reconciliation and trust. Volunteer only. Guess who was the first brave soul to sign up? So this next sequence was a really tricky one to kind of tackle, but it's one of the, the kind of biggest, I would say, expansions of um, a sequence in the book. I think in the in the book there's a a pretty brief mention of the rescue, and you know really Katniss doesn't know many of the details of the rescue, just other than I think it was the, the use of diversions and and gas, and so we had just kind of the most basic ideas to start with, and then worked really hard at kind of crafting a a rescue sequence and figuring out exactly where, you know, it took a while. I mean, it seems sort of obvious, but it took a while to figure out that Peta and Joanna and Annie would be held in the Tribute Center and not some sort of a prison somewhere. And to decide that, you know, their prison cells would be in some sort of lab where, you know, the torture would be taking place, which kind of adds a different, you know, emotional value in the the search. There's this kind of creepy medical kind of torture aesthetic that we get to see and get glimpses of as we move through. Um, but also to figure out what the plans are, what the, the plans were for, for our team, for 13, what, what they would need to do to get into the Capitol, believably, and also what the Capitol's plans are. How much do they really know and, you know, and what is revealed, what's revealed later. But it's a sequence that I'm really pleased with. It was a really tricky one in terms of 
logistics and shooting with all the kind of aerial units and the, the buildings and the repelling and... It's very suspenseful. Um, and uh, the choices that Francis made uh, for truly entering in darkness and operating in darkness, I think, are really powerful cinematically. President Snow used to sell me, or my body at least. I wasn't the only one. If a victor is considered desirable, the president gives them as a reward or allows people to buy them. If you refuse, then he kills someone you love. Mocking J1, you are 20 seconds from perimeter defense. One of the things that I really like as well is the idea of the, the use of Phoenix Propo as a diversion in this. And, you know, not that it's just having it on air is going to keep everybody's attention away, but also having it be sort of a, a mask for noise that's kind of jamming a bunch of uh, any sort of signals that the capital might have left in their power outage. It's a digital um, Trojan horse. Yes, exactly. But what's kind of nice is that when you go back to command, which again, you know, can can be tricky to, to make interesting, a bunch of people standing around a room staring at screens, to have Fennec exposing his past and some of the secrets of snow i think is it's really interesting and really haunting uh while our guys go into the capital but to sort of get that kind of background on finnick as a victor and what it's like to be a victor and how he was sold and and how snow rose to power and the use of poison and to finally get the insight into the sores and in snow's mouth and the blood i think is very nice and it it, it creates a a tone that I'm really happy with. There. Command, we have visual on the Tribute Center. Initiating final approach. A thing that we did coming up here that was very cool, so we shot in a in a building in Atlanta for the Tribute Center and Catching Fire. There was this, you know, the new Tribute Center that was designed because of the quarter quell, and we shot in this... Uh, the Marriott Marquis that was designed by an architect named John Portman, who designed many, many buildings in and around Atlanta as well as Los Angeles. But the Marriott Marquis is really striking in its interior. It sort of looks like you're in the rib cage of some sort of a beast. And it's a recognizable building from Catching Fire, and we thought it would be great for, for the tributes to be held in the Tribute Center. And so that gave us the idea to do the sequence where they break open the skylight and actually rappel down in darkness through this Marriott Marquis. So we, we actually did it live. The, the, the hotel gave us permission, and we had our stunt guys, you know, do a free descent, 50, what is it, 52 stories or something like that. It was really high and really scary and, and quite fast. But it was really cool that the, the Marriott Marquis let us do that, so... If anybody at the Marriott Marquis is watching, thank you. <laughs> so I love the way that they come down in, in darkness, uh, just illuminated by these these lights. But this is all real here. This is darkened Marriott Marquis, our guys really on lines, really going down, which is very cool, all the real GoPro helmet cam stuff. And so then we, what we did was we also had Mahershala and Liam do the last, I don't know, 100 feet or something like that so that they could actually drop down and land 
And so they did some of the final part of the descent. They didn't do 50, 50 stories, but they did the last 100 feet or so. I'm sure they would have done the whole thing if we'd let them. I think they would have. <laughs> I was just nervous to let them do that. There were so many mysterious deaths to adversaries, even to allies. And it was fun. We used these GoPro cameras, which were really kind of fun. So every time we shot a scene, like in the stairwell, we would then run all of our guys through it, each wearing uh, GoPro helmet cams and sort of redo the scene so we could use that for the, for the command. But antidotes don't always work, which is why he wears roses that reek of perfume, help cover the scent of blood from sores in his mouth that will never heal. For a while, we actually had um, the idea that Plutarch had informants in the capital that had left sort of, you know, an illuminated trail, something that you could only see with infrared lights, sort of like a dripped paint infrared trail that these guys would follow. But we got rid of that idea, but so we had to erase some of our infrared trail from this sequence. But he can't hide the scent of who he really is. This is another very cool set that Phil designed in a in a building, another John Portman building in uh, downtown Atlanta, but it was our lab, and it just gave this kind of creepy quality to the rescue here that you sort of go through and you see this lab equipment and jars with organs in it and scary-looking tools. It's just interesting when you know what's happened to Peter later to sort of think back and think about what you've seen. Poison. And in a little bit, we actually, um, we scouted a little for this lab when we were in Berlin. Um, and we went to this place that was really kind of creepy. It was some sort of a veterinary testing facility and uh, was kind of a grim, unhappy place. And they only would let us into a wing that was... Um, sort of evacuated, that was vacant, that they weren't using any longer, and they really didn't like us taking pictures and things there. And it's, it's good that we didn't shoot there. It was not a, not a great place, but they had these creepy cages that we used, the design in some of the cages that they pass by momentarily here once the lights turn back on. Can we still get in? Yes. For the moment the line's open, he will only see you. Okay, Captain. this... Uh, development here was actually uh, Suzanne's idea. Uh, we had talked and brainstormed at length about how to create an active role for Katniss, knowing that there was no way she could ever be on the rescue herself. Um, and, uh, you know, we knew from the beginning we would never have her go on the rescue. She's the mocking jay. She's too valuable to be sent into a mission like that's a mission where you know, it's a, not the kind of thing that, especially given her state when she breaks down, that she could go on, nor that they would let her go on. So trying to find an active role for her, I think this idea of having her connect with Snow and really this brutally honest conversation, but underneath it, as always, he's gaming her more than she's gaming him. Mm -hmm. um, he always has the last laugh. But I think that this is a great, a great scene and uh, was a really great idea from Suzanne on uh, how to make her sort of face her fear of 
this face-to-face -face conversation that they're having. Uh, but the things that he says to her are truly haunting. Yeah, I also like the idea because, I mean, in, in the series, there are these kind of anchor scenes between her and Snow. And so to to have the challenge of coming up with a new one, I think, was really strong and really important and um, I think really helped this movie to have one more because we're really not going to have the two of them together again, right, until the end of, um, you know, part two. And so it was nice to have a, a scene with the two of them together because so much of these stories is about the two of them. I told you what a fragile thing peace was. I'm still like a child. You took pleasure in... I also really love that she says the truth here. I never wanted to be the Mockingjay. I only did it to save my sister. Um, and she has been... become this powerful revolutionary, and yet it all... her reluctance um, is always there, and she acknowledges it here. You asked me to convince you that I was in love with PETA. Haven't I at least done that? Yeah, one of the tricks with the, the, the sort of figuring this sequence out in general was because even for people who know the books, it was the idea was uh, how can you make a sequence that's sort of exciting and surprising even for people who know, who know the books and know the outcome and know where the story is going. Um, and, and I think we've done that, which I'm very proud of. Well, and this notion that if PETA has been turned into a weapon, which I assume you'll know if you are watching the, <laughs> the, commentary. the commentary at this point, uh, so I'm not giving too much away. Um, if he's been turned into a weapon, then, of course, uh, as suspenseful as this scene is and as great as the Jeopardy feels, Snow wanted him to be reunited with Katniss, and so he actually wants that rescue to occur. And when he says, uh, when the electricity goes out, moves and counter moves, mm -hmm. that's sort of our nod to him figuring out how to play this chess game with what he thinks will be his winning move. Yeah, this was also a nice additional scene here. Um, in the development of so coin, and it was you know not something that existed, but to to sort of create this this moment of warmth between Katniss and Coin, I think is really important because it really gives us a lot of room to to go in different directions in the next movie. But whatever strength, courage, madness keeps us going, you find it times like these. You haven't, soldier. It's what's kept you alive all this time. And it won't fail you now. I like the idea of Coin thinking that the two of them are alike and connecting the two of them emotionally. Phoenix rope from the book. We don't see see it too much in the movie, but we see it a little in the beginning and a little here. This was fun to shoot. And instantly great to have Jenna back. So great as Joanna. Just ripping her stuff off. 
and angry. Uh, we used a, a bald cap, um, but we also, uh, Francis had the idea as well to um, shoot from behind somebody who really was bald and then to comp that in so that you wouldn't have that phony bald cap feeling. Yeah, so anytime you saw a shine or a seam or anything like that in the bald cap, we could just replace it with a real... She had basically a bald double, somebody that was just willing to shave her head. But Jenna just wasn't, you know, honestly, jo Joanna's not around enough for it to be worth shaving her entire head. So she'd have to be bald for nine or ten months. I just didn't, <laughs> just for I didn't the one feel scene. that was right. So we figured a way around it, and, and I'm really happy with the way it looks. And we also did some sort of withering of her as well with uh, visual effects and having her ribs show and like her neck skinnier and all that so it looks like she's lost a bunch of weight while of being in the capital. This is a very poignant scene with her and Gail. Obviously he's returned her to the man that she loves more than him but it also is again an acknowledgement that he knows something's off. It doesn't make sense how easy it was to get away. Here you can see a lot of the work that the effects company did on PETA. You can see his spine and the work they did on his neck and his cheeks and the kind of damage. Josh did a great job in the scene, too. This was a fun one, too, to block. And Sam Hargrave, our stunt coordinator, did an amazing job choreographing this right here. <laughs> They had a lot of fun shooting this scene. Yeah. Get off! Get off of her! Let go! This is really fun. And also did some effects work here. You can see with the hands really digging into her neck. A lot of times choking just doesn't feel all that real, but when you see it sort of squeezing the skin. We considered ending the movie right there. Yes, we did. <laughs> I think we were all really hot on uh, the the Breaking Bad endings. We'd all been watching Breaking Bad religiously at each other's apartments and thought that that was, you know, ending it there was just like a Breaking Bad episode. But then we realized people would probably riot <laughs> thinking we just ended it there. It would be a little manipulative. So because we thought that was going to be the end, this actually was going to be the beginning of Mockingjay Part 2 her waking up in the hospital. Don't try to talk. Peter's okay, I promise. I just had to get him off. It's called hijacking. We don't know how long the Capitol's been doing this to Peter. It's fear conditioning, enhanced with tracker jacker venom. So this is ideally when you start to think back to that creepy lab that uh, Gail and uh, Boggs crept through when they rescued uh, the, the tributes, that you would think back to the, the horrible things that must have been done to, to Peter to make him and turn him into this. Other memories or a person. They can change his memories of Katniss. To make her seem life-threatening. They turned him into a weapon, Katniss. I really like this moment with Phil here, too, where... Where he gets tired of the, the negativity <laughs> and has to put the Plutarch spin on it. It's new terrain. 
but we've put together a team. I'm optimistic. I really don't believe him. <laughs> but he puts on a good show. This is another one of the sequences I really like in the movie. This is um, this was something that we all kind of created this this intercut. I always liked the idea of now seeing coin shine, soaking it in. You now see also on the screens that there's close-ups of her when before it used to be lists of things or they used to be off or it would be the propo. Now it's her face in close-up and she's sort of soaking up the, the applause and the attention and she really speaks well now. Um, and there's a little hint that, uh, that Plutarch has written this speech for her that you can see later. But the idea of giving this speech and having this sort of sense of victory in the collective with coin speech and people applauding and then to, to see Katniss having been choked, bruised and damaged and sick, you know, wandering the halls and finding PETA straining and struggling and in pain, strapped to a bed, just the kind of contrasts. Um, that I love and I really like the way that it works, that it works together. Let all of well, and I, I love going into the next movie with a real sense of Coin's rise to power and that she has become um, a force to be reckoned with on her own terms, uh, which will figure so prominently into the culmination of the series. Yeah, now she's really learned from Plutarch, riling people up, selling. But I like that Effie looks a little concerned. <laughs> yes. This new Panem is on the horizon, but we must take it for ourselves. The road there leads through the sharp... This hospital set was a fantastic set. Yeah, another one of the sets that were just great. I mean, so was the collective. I mean, they were, again, they were all... Phil just outdid himself. ...the capital's principal military facility. We can conquer this stronghold because we are one people, one army... And so we debated a little bit here at the end. Um, for a while, it ended on a close-up of Katniss in a very similar way to Catching Fire and this kind of close-up of her looking at PETA and reacting to PETA. And then we decided to kind of flip it a little bit. And I'm really happy with uh, the outcome. I like this idea of, of seeing her looking at PETA reflected in the glass, but really seeing PETA struggling and straining and in pain and suffering. Also, with coin, this last sequence, there's a good chance to see the great gray contact lenses we yes. made for her. They're both in big trouble. <laughs> All right. Thanks for, uh, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it, and... Uh... I'll talk to you guys in the next one. I'm a princess cut from marble Smoother than a storm 
strange things did happen here no stranger would it be if we met at midnight in the hanging tree are you are you coming to the tree where i told you to run so we'd both be free strange things did happen here no stranger would it be if we met at midnight in the hanging tree are you are you coming to the tree where a necklace of hope side by side with me strange things did happen here no stranger would it be if we met at midnight in the hanging tree are you, are you coming to the tree where I told you to run so we'd both be free? Strange things did happen here, no stranger would it be if we met at midnight in the hanging tree. Are you, are you coming to the tree?